Wow, what a good thing to have a live band, live worship, good stuff, things are changing. Thank you so much. Uh, we are going to jump straight in to this this morning, so I hope that you are really, really well rested, and if you're not well rested, then at least I hope you are really well caffeinated. Um, last week, you will remember that Andrew rounded out the end of John chapter 6, and he did that with some, some really difficult teaching from, from Jesus, and it was teaching that was so difficult, so confronting, so offensive, that many of his disciples turned away. And Jesus was saying, you might remember this, and Jesus was really driving it home. He said it more than once. He said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, unless you drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. And we know that that's a, that's a metaphor, of course, but it's incredibly powerful and it's super important as we begin to understand what it is that Jesus is saying here. You cannot participate in my life unless you also partake of my death. And so Jesus was stating a fact, but he was also being deliberately provocative, Andrew was saying. He was separating the wheat from the chaff and, and the sheep from the goats, and many leave. Those who do remain, they continue to travel, they continue to minister with Jesus throughout, throughout Galilee, and though some of them, some of them still had their reservations about Jesus. Now, the whole of chapter 7 is going to be our focus for today. And if we were going to step through chapter 7, the way that we've been stepping through the other chapters, we would actually be here all day, and I reckon it would be a pretty good day. Um, but we're not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to focus on just two, maybe three verses out of chapter 7, and we're going to spend the rest of our time creating context painting a picture. In verse 2 of chapter 7, if you do happen to have your Bible with you, might not be necessary today, but if you do have it with you, chapter 2 of verse 7, John tells us that the Jewish feast of tabernacles was approaching. Now your Bible, it might say the feast of booths, it could say the feast of shelters, uh, the Jewish name for this feast is Sukkot. And they all kind of mean the same thing, and I'm going to refer to, to each of them probably this morning. Um, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, Feast of Shelters, Sukkot, it's all the same thing. Now here in John 7, this is the only mention of this feast in all of the New Testament. This feast is the seventh and final feast in the Jewish calendar. It took place on the seventh month of the year, and it lasted for seven days. Each year, Sukkot takes place between the 15th and the 21st of the month of Tishrei, and that's in the Northern Hemisphere's autumn. So this year, Sukkot was September 20 to September 26. The Feast of Tabernacles, it was, it was the biggest and it was the happiest of all of the festivals. It marks the end of the, of the busy harvest period and so the farmers would bring in their grain offerings, they would celebrate the end of the Jewish year 
uh, and they would also ask God for his blessing on, on the year ahead. And all able Jewish males were required to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot uh, together each year. Now, one of the... One of the features, one of the main features of this celebration was that people made, or people still do, they still make these temporary dwellings out of timber and, and out of branches, and then they would camp, they would picnic under these shelters for the full seven days for the duration of Sukkot. Here's the instruction that, that Yahweh gave to Moses about, about the feast. This was in Leviticus 23. He said, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Begin celebrating the Feast of Shelters on the 15th day of the appointed month, five days after the Day of Atonement. This festival to the Lord will last for seven days. For seven days, you must live outside in little shelters. All native-born Israelites must live in shelters. This will remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so this feast, the Feast of Shelters, Feast of Tabernacles, it's mentioned in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, in 1 Kings, in 2 Chronicles, in Hosea, in Zechariah. It's a, it's a big deal. So these little shelters, the, these temporary dwellings, um, that's actually what tabernacle means, means these temporary dwellings. Uh, but it is also a verb. And so to tabernacle means to dwell. It means to inhabit. And so these little shelters, they're kind of frail. They are temporary. They are kind of exposed to the elements. They require constant attention. So it's just like camping. And so it would have been awesome Kids would have been looking forward to the Feast of Tabernacles all year. Feast of Tabernacles would be like a week-long Christmas Eve, and perhaps in more ways than we think, and I, I might get to that later. So as well as being a harvest feast, this Feast of Tabernacles, it, it commemorated God's protection and his provision for the Israelites during their 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. And so these booths, these tents or these tabernacles, they would remind the Jews of the temporary shelters that their ancestors lived in in their time in the desert. You, you might also remember that God instructed Moses to build him his own tabernacle so that he might dwell with this fledgling little Israelite nation, that God would dwell in a tent with them in the wilderness together. And so, so this is the instruction that God gave to Moses in Exodus 25. God says to Moses, have the people of Israel build, build me a holy sanctuary so that I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern that I will show you. So here's, here's God present in this temporary dwelling, in a fancy tent. And the design, the, the pattern of this tent and all the stuff that goes with it was all really precise. 
And then over the years now, scholars have done this really fascinating work in understanding the, the design of the tabernacle, of the tent, and all the stuff, the connections between that and the Garden of Eden in Genesis, and then between the tabernacle, the Garden of Eden, and all of creation, all of the cosmos, Candace, that's for you. And so the idea is that all of creation is his tabernacle. That all creation is inhabited by, it is the dwelling place of God. And so the tabernacle, of course, this is where Yahweh would meet with Moses. It is the tent of meaning, tent of meeting. And that is the whole, the whole um, purpose of this idea of tabernacle. It is where God dwells in proximity with his people. It's where God meets with us. And so the Feast of Tabernacles... It was put in place to commemorate this time in the wilderness, living in temporary structures in the presence of God as he guided the Israelites toward the promised land. And so now we fast forward to this scene in John, and even though the Jews are now in the promised land, they're in Jerusalem, they would live outside for seven days as if they were still waiting to enter it. And remember, too, that a key theme in that whole wilderness story is provision, provision from God. God provided manna, bread from heaven. If you remember two weeks ago, I think it was Pete Carblis who spoke about um, uh, Jesus, where Jesus revealed himself as the bread of life. Jesus is the true manna from heaven. And in the wilderness, God also provided water. He provided water from a rock. Water has already played a pretty big, uh, been a big theme in, in John so far. So we've seen baptism, we've seen the wedding at Cana, the woman at the well, the healing at the pool. So water's already a big deal in John and it's going to play a role in today's scene too. So all of this imagery is, go is going on. It's all incredibly powerful to the Israelites as they look back and they look back and they remember their rescue story, the wilderness story, the, the, the exodus story that frames their nation um, as they thank God for this harvest right now and as they pray for the autumn rain to come. It doesn't rain in Israel um, between, between spring and autumn and so praying for rain is an important part of this of this feast and all the while they're looking forward to the ultimate promises of God and his everlasting kingdom. And so this feast, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, it was the last and the biggest of the seven Levitical feasts all established by God. Now the first four feasts, and I think we've got a slide for that, the first four feasts, the spring feasts, um, are Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, um, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks, or, or Pentecost. Now, each of these feasts are kind of burned into the collective memory, the shared imagination of, of the Israelites year after year. And each one of these feasts were prophetic. Every single one of them looks forward to 
and is fulfilled by Jesus. And get this, each one of those four feasts was fulfilled by Jesus on the day of the feast. So the Passover feast, you'll remember, that is looking, looking back to the sacrificial lamb of the Exodus narrative, but it foreshadowed the crucifixion of Christ, which took place at Passover. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was remembering that during that rushed escape out of Egypt that the Israelites were instructed, don't put any yeast, don't put any leaven in, in your bread. Um, yeast or leaven had come to be understood as a metaphor for sin. So here we have this, this bread without yeast and then we have Jesus, the bread of life without sin. And now this sin is crucified with Christ. It is dead and buried and it is defeated in the tomb of Christ on the day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then we have the Feast of Firstfruits and it was celebrating the very first harvest of the year. And it was celebrated on the third day of Passover, the day of resurrection. And so here is Jesus. He is the first fruit, the first of a whole new humanity. And then the final spring feast was Pentecost, or is Pentecost. It is the feast of weeks, and it is seven weeks after first fruits, or 50 days, and that's where we get the word Pentecost. It is the second of three harvest festivals. Uh, the Jews would gather, they would, they would bring their harvest of grain to the Lord. And on the day of Pentecost, as we understand it, the Holy Spirit is poured out on Jews and Gentiles alike. It is the birth of the church and the work of the great harvest has begun. And so all of these feasts, they're all instituted like 1,100 years before the birth of Jesus. And these first four were all fulfilled on the actual day of their observance. And so this calendar of feasts, it kind of acts like a, like a timetable, some kind of scheme of, of God's redemptive plan, the mission of God here on earth. And so now we, we've got the three autumn feasts, if we can pop that slide back up. And so, so as we understand it, these three autumn feasts, they look forward to the age to come. So we live in this period now, kind of between the feasts, between the spring and autumn feasts. The first autumn feasts, feast is the Feast of Trumpets. It is 10 days of penitence or of repentance in preparation for the Day of Atonement. And the belief is that the Feast of Trumpets, that looks forward to the return of Christ to establish his everlasting kingdom here on earth and the trumpets will announce his return. Then there's the day of atonement. It is the one day of the year that the priest can enter into the Holy of Holies and seek forgiveness for the nation of Israel. Uh, so this day of atonement or as the, the early church mothers and fathers understood it at, at one moment, it foreshadows the day of judgment where the sheer magnitude of Christ's atoning work will be revealed. And then at last, we have the Feast of Tabernacles. It is the third and it's the final harvest celebration of the year. It is the commemoration of Yahweh's provision in the wilderness that he dwelt with, that he travelled with, that he guided the Israelites toward the promised land. This Feast of Tabernacles, it anticipates 
the final harvest. It anticipates the ultimate harvest. He prefigures that day that Ezekiel wrote about in Ezekiel chapter 37. Jeremiah wrote about it. Isaiah wrote about it, if you want to research that. And it is the day that John writes about in Revelation 21, when we finally enter the ultimate promised land. John writes this. He says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. Then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. He also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. The word live here, that he will live with them. The word live here is skenu. It's the Greek word and it means to dwell. It means to pitch a tent. It means to tabernacle. It's the same word that John uses back in chapter 1 in verse 14 where, where John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word tabernacled with us. Just like Yahweh tabernacled with the Israelites in the wilderness, so the Son of Man dwelt among us. In the person of Jesus, God pitched a human tent. And when the Holy Spirit came, when the Holy Spirit was, was poured out, you became that tent. You became the tabernacle, the dwelling, the dwelling place of God. And so even while we are still in these frail and temporary tents, we look forward to, to life permanently in the everlasting kingdom, reunited and reconciled and abundant and joyful and overflowing and everything made new. And this is what the Feast of Tabernacles is really all about. God with his people permanently. So that's kind of the backdrop. That's all the, all the purpose of this Feast of Tabernacles. But what's going on? What's actually taking place each day across these seven days? So we, we understand these little shelters, but what else is happening? That's a really, really good question. I'm glad that you asked. Well, each morning during the feast, a procession of priests would make their way down um, from the temple, down through the streets uh, with, uh, with bran waving branches, palm branches, and I think there's three or four different kind of branches that they're, that they're waving. There are instruments being played. Um, there is scripture that is being read, and they're making their way from the temple in Jerusalem all the way down to the Pool of Siloam. And Siloam, by the way, means sent one. 
The pool of Siloam is fed from the spring of Gahom. And Gahom, if your memory's really good, you might remember is one of the rivers that's mentioned um, in Genesis flowing through Eden. It was the spring of Gahom that made settlement in Jerusalem possible. Spring water, water that bubbles up from the ground, is referred to as living water. Living water comes from a spring. And so the priests would make their way down to the pool. And then one of the priests is carrying this this pitcher, this golden vessel, and they would carry it down to the pool of Siloam. And then the priest who is carrying this pitcher, he would dip it into the pool. He would fill it with living water. And then the whole procession would turn around and they would march and they would sing their way back up to the temple. And when they got back up to the temple, the priests would walk around the altar of burnt offerings and they would, they would sing psalms and they would sing songs from Isaiah. They would sing Isaiah 12 verse 3. With joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. They would sing Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you nations, praise him, all you people of the earth, for his unfailing love for us is powerful. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. And so so all these activities during Sukkot would all remind God's God's people of, of, of his unfailing faithfulness for rescuing them from the Egyptians through the water of salvation for protecting them, for providing for them daily in the wilderness, providing manna from heaven and water from a rock, if you remember the story. And then, in front of the altar, some of the water from the pitcher would be poured out onto the ground in front of the altar and it would form little streams on the dry ground. And then the rest of the water was poured into a a little container that was on the altar and there's a spout at the bottom of the container and the water would be funneled through that spout into a hole on the altar and I think there's a picture of, of that too. And then at the same time, wine from another picture is also poured into its own container and so both water and wine would flow out and onto the altar and then into the altar itself. And all the while, the trumpets are blowing and the tree branches are waving and songs are being sung. And so water, the provision from God, the Holy Spirit, life itself, and wine, the produce of the vine, the symbol of gladness, you might remember from the wedding at Cana, and also symbolic of blood. Blood and water poured out on the altar, a sacrifice. And this would happen every morning during the feast with all of the Israelites watching the procession from the streets, watching the ritual from the temple courts. Now all of that is context. I told you all of that just so that I could tell you this. Jesus turns up halfway through 
the festival. He misses the first few days altogether. He turns up and he starts teaching in the temple and of course he's ruffling feathers and some are for him, some are trying to kill him and some still haven't made up their mind and that includes some of the disciples. And now we get to the last day. It's the greatest day of the feast. It's on this day that the fate of the new year is determined. It's on this day that the priests ask for rain. This day is Hoshana Rabbah and it literally means save now great. Hoshana Rabbah is the great day of salvation. And get this, this is just a freebie. There is pretty good evidence to suggest that this last day of Sukkot, Hoshana Rabbah, is the actual birth date of Jesus. We certainly know it's not December 25. Hoshana Rabbah is the great day of salvation. On the other days, the priests would circle the altar once before they poured out the water and the wine. But on this day, they circle, you know, seven times. On Hoshana Rabbah, there is a special closing ceremony and even more water is poured out and even more wine is poured out on the altar. And then the priests implore God for the year ahead, by your power, give us rain. And then John records this in chapter 7, verse 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up And cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. So on this great day of salvation, the final day, the priest would plead for rain, and Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Anyone. The only qualification is thirst. That's it. Are you thirsty? He goes on and he says, anyone or whoever believes in me, and the word here is pisteo, and we've looked at this word before, whoever has faith, whoever is faithful, out of his belly, will flow rivers of living water. Your translation might say out of his heart or out of his inmost being, but the word here is belly. It's abdomen, it's stomach, rivers of living water, life everlasting, the spirit, fruitfulness, flourishing, flow from his belly. So you can forget this spring at the bottom of the hill where a priest has to go and carry the water up to the temple because from within the one who is faithful flows living water, the source of life. And we can go back to the Exodus narrative again where where God commanded Moses to strike the rock and water would flow from the rock to quench the thirst of the wandering Israelites. You know the story. God says to Moses, he says, Behold, I'll stand before you there on, that, on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And so Moses struck the rock, 
and living water poured out. And this is why Jews like springs, living water. And so then the Apostle Paul, now in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, Jesus says that rock, that rock that Moses hit, it is Christ. Jesus is the rock. Paul writes, he says, for they, the the Israelites, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Can you think of another time when Christ was struck and water came out? At the crucifixion, Jesus was already there, already dead. He had already given up his life. And then John writes this in chapter 19, verse 34, and he's the only one to include this detail. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water flowed out. It was in the laying down of his own life that the living water flowed. It was subsequent to Christ's total submission, drinking the cup of suffering, it says in all four Gospels. It was only by drinking the cup of suffering that the Holy Spirit was poured out. And it was this pouring out of the Spirit that John had in mind when he recorded this scene. He adds this uh, in in verse 39 parenthetically, just, just so that we're really clear. He says, when he said, when Jesus said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. So Jesus is the source of this living water, of the Spirit. But then the one who believes in him, the one who places their faith in him, the one who is faithful to him will have that very source, the spirit of God within him within him too, in his own belly. You'll remember that the, the scene with the woman in, at the well back in John chapter four, Jesus said to her, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become In him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Whoever drinks the water that I will give him, to drink the drink that Christ offers, to consume it, to integrate it, to take it into ourselves, it is eternal life because he is eternal. But it is also to drink the cup of suffering because he is struck, because he is pierced, because he is crucified. And so no wonder many turn away. When Jesus invites you to drink and to believe, it is indeed the invitation to the present reality of life eternal. It is the genuine, all expenses paid, life in the kingdom, in the dwelling place with and within the triune God. The gift is free, it is abundant, it is everlasting and you are absolutely included. But if we are to experience this life now, if we are to take it in, if we are to bear witness to that ultimate reality, 
<clears throat> if we are to resemble his shalomic kingdom, if we are to participate in the redemptive mission of God in this world, if we are to be salt and light, if we are to be a city on a hill, if we are to be free, if we are to be fruitful, if we are to be filled with the Spirit, with living water, then we must lay down our lives. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single kernel. But if it dies, it produces a great harvest. Jesus could not have been any clearer. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. We cannot share in the resurrected life of Jesus unless we also share in his death, in his crucifixion. Last week, Andrew read those incredibly difficult verses of Jesus in John chapter 53, John 6, verse 53, when Jesus said, Again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. Paul summed it up like this in, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I live by belief in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because my life has been crucified, Christ's resurrected life is now my life. It's his eternality that I now Embody, And that cannot happen if I still think that I'm in control. If I still think that I'm the one who's on the throne. If I still think that it's my life. This is the length and the depth and the breadth of the gospel. The, the new and the everlasting life that is waiting for us. It is waiting for us on the other side of our egos. It is waiting for us on the far side of our preoccupations with ourselves and our comparisons and our self-sufficiency and our autonomy and our illusions of control and our striving for comfort. And I'm not talking about dealing with all of the petty, crappy little behavioural things that we call sin. I'm talking about this deep-seated human compulsion to displace God, to place ourselves at the centre instead of God and others. This self must be crucified, pierced, struck. Streams of living water and not flowing out of the bellies of the self-absorbed. So do you thirst? If you are thirsty, we can come to Jesus and drink. But if you believe in him, if you locate your life in his life, rivers of living water will flow from your own belly.
The living water of the Spirit will will flow through you and from you as you participate in the life of Christ. And it's a crucified life. It's the narrow way. And I know that this can be pretty sobering and confronting as, as a topic. Dying to self is rarely a crowd pleaser. The Feast of Tabernacles looks forward to life together in the kingdom, with him, toward the great and the final harvest, and Jesus Christ is the epicentre of that promise. And we can live in the light, we can live in the influence of that reality right now by the Spirit of Christ within us. But we need to drink the drink that he offers us. There are no neat bows. There are no comforting platitudes. There's no concessions. And so I'll simply wrap up in exactly the same way that John does in verse 53. Then the meeting broke up and everybody went home. Let me pray. Jesus, we are thirsty. We live in a dry land. Our hearts can feel dry. Our belly can feel dry. And all around us we think that and we're told and we're sold that the way to quench this thirst is for us to be on the thrones of our own, of our own lives. To be our own little gods to be in control, to put ourselves at the centre. But you said, we are not to be like that. Lord Jesus, by your spirit within us, our desire is that we would elevate you, that we would see you on the throne of our our own lives, of our own communities, of of our own nation, that we would love you, that we would love others, that we would lay our, life, our lives down for you, for one another in the same way that you have done for us. Place your spirit within us, we pray. Lord Jesus, bringing up, welling up within us to eternal life. This is our prayer. We pray it in your name. We pray for water. Amen.